Yeah, yeah. We were talking about kids like escaping out the front door of the house for the first time, <laughs> like a fucking oh, yeah. heart attack. So at twenty months, literally, I just, I just heard the front door slam shut, and then Yanina like scream from upstairs and run down the stairs. <laughs> she like, just walked out the front door. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey, everybody, and uh, welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Joining us today... Yeah, for our very first three-peat, I believe, is uh, a new record. our good friend, a new record for Endurance Innovation. Yeah, I, feel, I feel like the Chicago Bulls, almost. <laughs> yeah, it's close. It's a, it's a close uh, close second to that. <laughs> it's our good friend, um, David Tilbury Davis. Good morning. Good morning, David. We brought David on to chat a little bit about uh, the role of recovery and training, which I think is most of our listeners understand as being very high, um, and talk about some of the specifics and some of his uh, some of his thoughts on the matter and some of his approaches uh, to to both quantifying it and applying it in his work with his athletes. So, David, thank you very much for uh, taking the time and uh, joining us today. My pleasure. And I'd say right now is actually a pretty interesting time in terms of being able to experiment with a lot of these things because no one really has races coming up. So if you want to take... In North America. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think it's starting to open up in the rest of the world. Um, the the people who came to their senses early and, and actually handled things properly. But uh, yeah, it's it does give an opportunity where you don't you're not necessarily sacrificing a race performance or lead up to a race, but you can play around with these methodologies and, and modalities to see what actually works for you and how you perform when you do it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think what's interesting as well is there was a, some commentary. Um, earlier this week, late last week around, you know, there actually seems to be a pretty reasonable trend in the endurance community of, you know, athletes, you know, running solo 5k, 10k, you know, one hour, four hour marathon PBs, you know, here, there, different sports. Um, And I think a lot of that has to do with the sort of continuity of the training process at the moment. Um, when, you know, for some individuals, they might find that their sort of, their sort of capacity to maintain a training process has been sort of demarked by numerous races, whereas in fact now, you know, some individuals have found themselves just, you know, um, chopping wood and carrying water day in, day out and, and benefiting from that consistency. Mm-hmm. And I think the changes in lifestyle are instrumental in that. And there's maybe some divergence there where, where some folks who, let's say if you had uh, you know, uh, an office job or any, any kind of regular hours job that you would do in person and now you are doing it remotely, then you know that cuts down on the commute like Andrew is the, per- the perfect case for that. So then some people have a little bit more time to spend training or they have maybe a little bit more time to recover. Um, and then whereas others now have kids at home. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking from your own experience there. Speaking from my own experience. Yeah. So um, maybe perhaps a little bit more of a compressed schedule. So, you know, I think that uh, the, the changes in schedule and I think life has become a little bit more routine for, for, for folks, like even in my life, which is hectic, yeah. but it's routine hectic. Um, so routine is, I think, a big you know, a routine is a friend of training, in my opinion. The other point that I'd probably make too is that um, in terms of routine or in terms of being able to prioritize different things, if you are lucky enough to be able to work from home, then having something like being able to go out for a swim at lunch or go out for a run at lunch where maybe you didn't have that flexibility before mm-hmm. has really opened up, I think, the the opportunity for optimum training where you can now still get your work done, but uh, you're not necessarily confined by the the office anymore yes all right so let's jump into recovery david um i would love to hear your high level thoughts i think you know i our our, our, our thinking probably on this aligns quite a bit especially given that you, you you've taught me a lot of what i know about it um but uh yeah let's talk about let's talk about where the role that you you place on recovery in training and specifically uh how do you get your athletes who maybe don't 
places heavier an emphasis on it to take it more seriously where they may just want to do more, do more stress, do more training? I mean, I think the first thing is really getting athletes to understand um, two, two main aspects. And the first one is you cannot compartmentalize stress in relation to your body. You know, the physical stress can't be compartmentalized um, away from emotional stress or physical stress in other forms or, um, you know, autoimmune stress due to poor diet. You know, just there are all sorts of other stresses that impact on the body, you know, mental and uh, biological. And I think athletes have a tendency to, you know, particularly athletes you know that are age group athletes amateur athletes that are working is they're like sort of you know family is family work is work training is training and ne'er the three shall meet and and that's just not true in your body even if it is true in your mind and there's you know there's numerous examples of of this in the medical community where you hear of you know people that are considered you know stalwarts um in in their community or their work environment, just you know, suddenly keeling over with heart attacks, um, and and so this is a really important aspect for athletes to understand first of all, and and then the the, the second part of it is really also understanding this idea of the the minimum effective dose of training. Mm-hmm. I, I think when the society that we live in at the moment, that there's you know. You know, we have a situation where there is a tendency for, um, you know, individuals to have the opportunity to sort of self-aggrandize on social media platforms, Instagram. And so when other athletes see that and they say, oh, you know, so-and-so is doing 35 hours of training a week or, you know, oh, this person's doing, you know, 200 mile bike rides every week or, you know, this person's doing you know, three 90 minute runs a day, um, or they're doing you know, like a swim bike, you know, they're doing a bike run brick three times a day. You know, that's obviously what you need to do. There's a, there's a complete lack of context there. And I can, you know, I can give a good example of, um, one of my athletes who, you know, shares all of their training data on Strava and, um, and, they they crossed paths with some some German journalists when they were training abroad a couple of months ago, um, much much earlier in the year, and that you know those those sort of triathlon journalists started following them and and then the other week they went for a long run and they were a little bit cheeky and you know ended up running um, a marathon in two hours thirty seven minutes in the midst of a <laughs> of a long of a long run and and aside from that you know me being slightly annoyed but (laughs) smiling um you know their feedback was you know that was you know that was comfortable they were running alongside one of their parents and chatting and and i was like well okay i'll you know i'll cut you some slack on that but but the outside perception was um you know that the training that this person doing is is freakishly crazy and and masses and masses of of load intensity and volume and there was a, a very a very large lack of context and understanding and that's the point i'm stressing is that when you look at some you know world class athletes you you need to understand context before you start drawing opinions and you know when you see people talking about their average training week you know what they're really talking about is the biggest week of training they've done in the last <laughs> 6 months um so so when you know, when the rubber meets the road and I tell people, right, this is actually the sort of the, the training that you need to do consistently and week in, week out from a volume perspective, you know, sometimes they're a little surprised and, and they're like, oh, well, you know, should I, you know, should I be doing more? And so, well, no, because it's better to, you know, build and build and build for sort of three, five, 10 years than it is, you know, to be a rock star for 18 months and then, you know, be burnt out you know, whether that's mentally or physically, mm-hmm. you know, it's up for debate. So, so I think that's the two things that I stress is, you know, understand context and understand compartmentalization. Um, and then generally, you know, once people grasp that they're on board, um, and, you know, and I also stress to them the importance of being injury free and, you know, 
sometimes there, you know, there are some things that can crop up that may occur due to sort of an acute something that happens acutely. Sure. You know, like you hit a pothole, that's a fairly acute <laughs> that's a fairly acute thing that impacts on uh on injury or you know there's some random change of equipment choice that you know impacts on biomechanics um but that's the other thing that i stress is you know the 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 consistency you know is is about creating a situation where you're not pushing the envelope um and that there is not and, and this is something i firmly believe as a coach that there is not an uh an inevitability about getting injured as an endurance athlete you know, that, that to me that's just not true i think you know if 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 a coach or an athlete has an attitude that there's an inevitability um then the the, the issue lies with the coach and the process that they you know they're implementing right well, i really like what you said about rather than focusing on recovery which is you know as we'll talk about sometimes a little bit of a nebulous concept um what you do instead is you make sure that the load isn't isn't you know, overly heavy that it's, yeah. you, you use the really, you know, use the term I really like that minimum, minimum effective dose where, you know, you're seeing, you're, you're doing enough stress, you're doing enough stress, you're applying enough stress to see adaptation, but you're not, you're hopefully not applying so much stress that the body cannot adapt to it. And it's not, and it's not like lit my finger and stick it up and guess the wind speed. <laughs> you know, it, it is, there are, there are definitely ways to quantify that. Um, Let's dive into it. Yeah, we, we you know you can you can look at um, heart rate variability both you know on a sleep basis and on a during the day basis. You can look at oxygen saturation. You can look at resting heart rate. You but 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 most importantly, most importantly, you can just ask the athlete how they feel. <laughs> That's a very novel um, concept. And, and uh, yeah, and and generally speaking, you know, athletes you know will be reasonably forthright, but but sometimes. You know, you, you have to understand as a coach how to ask questions in the right way. Right. Um, because, you know, the nature of athletes is, you know, they want to train. You know, they want to get faster. They want to be better. They're willing to push the envelope. So sometimes something that's a niggle, you know, they're not going to mention because they're like, ah, pff, I just, you know, crack through it. Oh, you know, that sore throat, you know, we're actually there, you know, coughing up sputum from their lungs. They're like, I oh, know it's just, yeah, it's got a little bit of a cough at the moment. It's all good. You know, I, I feel fine. Um, well, actually, no. You know, uh, um, a doctor once, sports medicine physician said to me once that, you know, a good rule of thumb is, you know, if you, if you feel all right from the neck up, um, then you probably can do, you know, light aerobic exercise for not too long. Whereas if you're, you know, you're not all right from the from the neck down, then you definitely need to rest completely. And then, sort of additional to that is, you know, if you uh, if you feel 100% recovered, then what you probably want to do is wait another 24 hours and then start training again. Mm. And, and the funny thing is, is that I've been told that by, you know, sort of doctors working with athletes, and and I've also been told that by athletes that you know, have competed at the Olympics as, you know, what, what they've just sort of learned over the years about how to respond to, you know, getting a little bit ill here and there. Um, so there's definitely some truth and logic to that. So you can, you know, you, you can monitor sleep, heart rate variability, resting heart rate, you, you know, you can, you know, you can be very structured and have specific questionnaires around sort of, you know, there's a variety of questionnaires that you can use or you can just ask for subjective ratings on things like fatigue and sleep quality and muscle soreness there's training platforms that allow you to do this really really quickly easily and simply right um and then you know you can also look the athlete in the eye well, you know from from two meters away at the moment <laughs> but um if you're with them, but, um, you know, generally, you know, working with athletes remotely, you know, you can also Skype and FaceTime and, uh, with them and, and look them in the eye and say, okay, well, you know, how are you feeling? And, you know, you can try and read their body language. You can, you can look at their subjective feedback in their training and, and also do things like, um, collate the feedback that they give and, and use things like a word cloud to see, you know, patterns of repeatability in the language and choice mm. of words that they use. So, you know, if over a period of weeks, 
you know, doing that exercise, you know, you suddenly find that the athlete is um, using the word tired more than you would expect them to, then you probably need to dig a little bit deeper. So, yeah, it, it is, you know, you, you use that word nebulous around recovery. And, and I do think it, it is at times because there's things that can impact on female athletes, different to male athletes. You know, somebody might innocuously be told to take a, a medication um, for something that's not related to the training that they do. And there be side effects from that that impact on, um, you know, their absorption rate of nutrients. I've had that happen with an athlete. Mm -hmm. um, so, so sometimes, it, you know, sometimes the answer to understanding recovery is communication. It's not like devices and metrics. I mean, those things are great. They, they definitely allow you to do really good trend analyses um, when people are, you know, training or doing some intensity or doing altitude camps. But ultimately, uh, the most powerful tool, I think, is communication. Got it. We've really reached a point as a sport where there's so much data available and you can measure pretty much anything, but most people don't really know what to do with the data. So yeah. I really like the approach of just looking at the the subjective scores or the subjective feedback that the athlete gives where do you feel tired today or just these questions that maybe aren't leading but uh, give you an opportunity to, as an athlete, to express what you truly believe. And I think the, the real innovation comes as a coach where if you're taking the feedback and being able to uh, parse it down and, and take the important information out versus the answers that might be provided simply because the athlete thinks that they should, should answer this way, um, that offers, I think, a ton of opportunity to understand the athlete better and for the, the coach to understand physiology better in general. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for the art of being able to ask open questions as opposed to closed questions mm -hmm. um, as a coach, particularly when you're working re remotely. I'm going to put you on the spot, David, a little bit. Um, you, you've talked a lot about the well, the role of communication between the athlete and the coach, and uh, that's you know as a as a as a very successful coach, that's uh, that's where you excel. What about the self-coached folks, the people that uh, don't have access to a coach like yourself? Um, I mean, I think that's where some of these metrics do become useful because what they allow you know, through a process of trend analysis is to just ask good questions of, you know, is there a disconnect between how I'm feeling and how my body is feeling? Okay. Because how an athlete may feel when they're self-coached, you know, there may be some cognitive bias around, you know, the process that they're brought into from a training perspective or the expectation of what they should be capable of doing. Um, based on who they are or their peers or their athletic history. So I, I think it can create an, uh, a capacity to disassociate from any biases that may exist. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where things like, um, you know, j just keeping a diary of, you know, hours of sleep or, or resting heart rate um, can be quite useful or just, you know, rating quality of sleep on a scale of one to 10 or, um, you know, how, how healthy they feel their diet's been today. Um, just, just keeping that kind of diary can be, you know, pretty insightful. You mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, the, you used the term trends and I think I want to dig into this one a little bit deeper because I think it's an important concept. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping I'm not asking a leading question, but, uh, where do you, uh, where do you fall on using, uh, you know, trend analysis where for our listeners, of course, is just the, the moving average typically of, uh, of a number of days worth of a specific data, um, collected versus you know the reading on any one given day i think i, I think it, de it depends on the metric that you're talking about okay um i, I think um that the trend analyses are very useful and you know there's certain platforms that have those things built into them um but i think i caution people to get too you know in getting too wrapped up in numbers because sometimes those trend analyses are just either a reflection of mechanical work. Mm -hmm. So as an example, training peaks and training stress yep. or, you know, heart rate variability where, you know, it, it, it's really useful, but it, you know, it still doesn't disassociate between emotive stress and 
you know, physically induced, whether that's, you know, biological, nutritional, autoimmune, um, but it doesn't differentiate between the two. So again, um, you, you can get yourself in a situation where you might look at something and go, I need to change the training today. And, and actually through communication, um, <laughs> with a coach, you know, you might find that actually that the reason that your numbers have been, you know, off for the last three days is because you've been really stressed out about, you know, a wedding, you know, the wedding that you're organizing or trying to organize in the current climate for three months time. Are you moonlighting um, as a wedding planner? You're not telling us, David? I'm, I'm not. I'm just, you know, <laughs> I'm just talking off the cuff of an example I've had where, you know, I've, I've had, you know, I've had things go awry and, and, and somebody scratched their head and then, you know, we've dug a little deeper and, you know, it was good sort of communication. It's like, well, actually, this is what I've got going on right. personally. It's like, well, clearly that's affecting you, but we need to understand that sometimes the training and, and you know, doing a hard workout is, uh, you know, it creates endorphins. It's a very positive stimulus for you. So actually in this instance, we may just, you know, ignore the trend or at least have, you know, take that into context. That's always been something, a little bit of a contradiction in my mind, and maybe you can you can help me see through it, that uh, I certainly agree with you, with your point that you made earlier on, really early in our conversation about how stress is cumulative, how, you know, your body doesn't always tell the difference between, or usually doesn't tell the difference between emotional stress or training stress or, you know, nutritional stress or any number of other stresses, stressors, um, and that the effect is cumulative and it must be taken into account. Um, but then as you point out, so, you know, correctly, in my opinion here, that if your stress is an emotional one or a work one, um, sometimes training, adding a training stress to an already stressed state human being can be beneficial. Yes. So, you know, when is it, when is it, oh, there's too much global stress. Let's, you know, let's, uh, let's tap the brakes versus, oh, this is an emotional stress and actually adding some physical stress may help you. Uh, overall, imp- you know, improve your mental state as well as as, as your physical uh, train state. So, yeah. how do you uh, how do you think about when to do what? Uh, and, and that comes down to you know either talking with the athlete about you know what's going on and what they feel, and uh, you know they you know not not setting them up for failure. You know, saying okay, sure. you know, do you want to take a crack at this workout today? You know, or if it's somebody that's self coach, it's kind of being very reflective and saying you know actually you know what's my sort of you know what's my reason why for doing this training. And this exercise, and if I find it very cathartic, you know what? I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna start the workout, give it the 20 minute rule, see how I feel 20 minutes in after I've warmed up, and and if I feel good, then I'm gonna crack on. And if I feel like garbage, and you know, the legs don't feel like they're firing, or mm-hmm. just I, I feel sort of apathy towards the workout, then you know, I'm going to you know shut it down or take it a little easier or, or change the focus of the workout. So. It's, I think it's about being willing to be fluid. You know, it's, it's about having a plan and then being willing to change the plan. Mm-hmm. I really like that answer. And I, I, I've used your 20 minute rule with my athletes. I use it all the time. You know, that, that start it, do 20 minutes. And if you're really like, as you just said, if you're really not feeling it, then, you know, we, then we make modifications. But um, yeah, I think I've, uh, I've used those in my practice as well, that, that strategy. I've used that a bit recently too, just with, uh, well, everything's stressful right now for a lot of people. Um, but yeah, just some recent workouts haven't been going that well. And I would almost argue even that when you have a bad workout that contributes to the emotional stress as well. So you may not be getting the physical stress there, but you would be loading up your body and casting maybe these self doubts into your mind. And that could have a negative experience that's far greater than the the uh what you're trying to accomplish with the the workout itself i mean absolutely and i think also as well as in the current climate you know when there's a lot of stress and and stressing stimulus around um you know i'm no i'm no sort of you know warrior monk or anything but you know i would say that sometimes taking a step back and and just kind of closing your eyes and taking you know sort of six nice controlled deep breaths you know will actually really help people kind of just center themselves and and not do they you know their body not go in sort of like a fight or flight type situation 
So Andrew's question, uh, or Andrew's point rather, brings up uh, another question I had: is when do you uh, when do you see declining performance from an athlete? When do you see that as a sign of inadequate recovery versus versus other other things? I mean, it's 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 very you know multifactorial. But when is it when is it a red flag that this person may not be getting sufficient recovery? Let's say let's say let's use Andrew as a, as a case study <laughs> since he brought it up. Put himself on the spot. Um, I mean, if we start to see, if I start to see a, a disconnect between my expectation of capacity to execute a workout, yep. um, versus what actually happens, then that's where we would start to get amongst the weeds of, okay, what's going on? You know, what? You know, have you got any other stresses going on? Have you had any, you know, changes occur in terms of, you know, your diet or your you know, bike position or your equipment choices or, you know, all sorts of things, you know, I'd be, I'd be kind of starting to explore all those avenues and say, okay, well, there, there's always something that is causative of that maladaptation. And, and it might just be that, you know, you've pushed too hard. Um, you know, there's, you know, many a coach that can talk of athletes where they've said, you know, I'd like you to do this workout. I'd like to do it at this intensity. And then the athlete starts the workout and they're like, oh, I feel really good. I'm going to do it at 110% of the intensity <laughs> that coach said. Oh no! And then I like going to feel like a rock star. And then at the end of it, they're like, man, that was awesome. I crushed it. I'm smashed. It's like, yeah, great. Now tomorrow's training is going to suck. <laughs> yeah. um, so that wasn't <sighs> the sharpest decision. Um, That's so frustrating. You know, so, um, I, I think it just when you see a disconnect between expectation and outcome, it's when you start to ask more questions, look at more data, look at more trends. Yeah, yeah. Um, and sometimes, sometimes there isn't an answer, and you just have to roll with it and see what happens in another couple of days. Um, and that and that that sounds really dismissive, but you know we're not formula. You know, athletes are not Formula One cars. Um, in, you know that we we don't fully understand every aspect of the human body so or the human mind so you know sometimes you do have to roll with it and say mm, okay let's see what happens it's funny when i hear you talk about this stuff i'm like this is exactly how i think about it but then then i remember that it was i think about this because you and i spent a couple of years working together on, on developing some of these thought patterns so <laughs> i've i've uh you know in, incorporated them and and made them my own now but really that's that they probably came from you in the first place just a, a side note yeah I, I think another aspect of recovery you know is you know, once you're in a situation where you need to recover is, is, you know, athletes actually understanding some of the, you know, the, the actions that they can take to improve their recovery. Okay. Um, Let's talk about that. And, and that's, you know, that's a whole, you know, that can, that can be a whole Pandora's box of things that people see, you know, do I take this pill? Do I use this machine? Do I um, stick on these glasses? You know, I mean, yeah, we could be here all day disappearing down rabbit holes. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about the things that, uh, or the, the modalities that have the greatest amount of evidence behind them. So maybe starting at what you think is, you know, has the greatest amount of evidence working towards what has less or no evidence. I mean, I think the first one's sleep. I mean, there's um, a really strong body of evidence around quality of sleep being, you know, paramount, you know, most, most, um, you know, um, meta-analyses or, or books on the subject would say for athletes, you know, eight to nine hours is, you know, really what you're trying to hit um, of good quality sleep. You know, then you're, you know, then the other aspect is um, is nutrition, mm -hmm. and you know, you can get divisive and you can talk about um, how some athletes um, feel that it's better to be sort of, you know, plant-based or vegetarian or vegan. And, and I have, you know, nothing but respect for people that make those ethical decisions. But, you know, with those types of decisions also come, you know, complications in terms of managing the sort of macronutrient demands of doing endurance sport. And, you know, certainly if you if you thought about it for a minute and you and you picked a couple of endurance sports like cycling, like marathon running, like Ironman, and you said, you know, name me um you know 10 
world-class athletes across all those sports, you know, that are world-class, you know, world champion contenders that are, you know, not eating meat, I think you'd struggle to name 10. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not sat here saying that everybody should eat meat. I'm just saying that you know, with some nutritional choices comes significant demands to understand the underlying sort of macronutrient implications of that, which, you know, you can readily meet if you, if you have good planning, good shopping, good forethought, good cooking, you know, but it just can complicate the situation sometimes. It's more work, right? Yeah. Um, and ultimately when people say to me, you know, I'm, I'm not a registered dietitian, but you know, I've been advising on sports nutrition for many years. And, um, and I, people say, you know, what should I, you know, what should I eat? And, and what should I, you know, how should I shop? And I said, well, okay, well, a really good starting point is if you can harvest it or you can kill it, you can eat it. Mm-hmm. Um, and really what that is in a simplistic sense, or certainly in most Western worlds is, you know, you shop around the outside of the supermarket, you know, you buy fresh produce, you're not buying processed things. Um, you know, you're thinking about how to fuel for a workout and you're thinking about fueling post-workout. Um, so now that's definitely the second most important aspect. And, and then really you're into the realms of, you know, supplements and interventions. And, and this is where it can get interesting because, you know, there's companies that make um, intermittent pressure devices, mm-hmm. you, know, like, you know, recovery boots and things like that. Sure. Um, and, you know, there's also the same argument that, that can be, or the same thought process that I'll explain that can go with things like ice baths or, or cryotherapy. Um, or, but, but the reality is, is, we also need to understand that in order to get adaptation from training, we need to incur a certain amount of exercise-induced muscle damage, as, as the term um, goes. And, and so if we, if we need to create a certain amount of that to um, have a stimulus, see a response to that stress, see the body adapt and improve then there's a strong argument for many of these interventions not being sensible as day-to-day interventions Mm -hmm. because ultimately what they're doing is blunting that response and and that's you know well evidence if you look at it at a biochemical level you know there's papers around the use of um compression you know uh, intermittent pressure compression devices um, where they actually, you know, they've shown that they, you know, reduce uh, the presence of leukocytes um, in the muscles, and and those are, you know, those are associated with acute exercise-induced muscle damage. So, you know, ultimately, if we want to stress the body and feel tired and feel sore and see adaptation, then you know, my view is that we kind of need to let that happen. And then it's only when there's certain situations where there's significant, you know, overreaching, like, like, let's say going on a, on a training holiday or a training camp or doing a big weekend of training where you then might say, right, well, actually, because, because the Delta between my normal day-to-day training and what I'm doing this weekend or this week or this two weeks of training camp is so significantly different than actually, you know, putting a Band-Aid on, you know, on the exercise-induced muscle damage of, you know, recovery boots or massage or ice bars or cryotherapy is, you know, is, is not really going to significantly blunt the adaptive, you know, the adaptation. Right. Because there's just so much overload, if that makes sense. So, you know, when people talk to me about using some of these interventions, I always say to them, you know, if you do a big day or a big weekend of training and using them at the end of the weekend is maybe okay. Day to day is not that sensible. Um, but, but actually when you start to get close to a race, you know, in those last few days, you know, the, the, the cake is baked, you know, you've done (laughs) all the training, you've done all the adaptation, really you want to flush you know, the, you know, sort of metabolites that are a reflection of training stress on your body 
out of your system as quickly as possible. That's that's when you want to play around with these types of interventions to speed up that that taper process, uh, that recovery process. And at its most basic form, I think the body is trying to tell you something. It's There's a function, there's an evolutionary reason that you feel this soreness because you've done damage to yourself and it's kind of your body warning that uh, you may be overdoing it. So the the normal soreness after yeah. workout, yes, that can feel good. But uh, I agree, if you have a massive day or after an Ironman race or something like that, it's just a completely different level of soreness where you all of a sudden realize that you shouldn't be doing anything, that your muscles have been probably severely damaged and that uh, speeding that recovery might actually put you in a situation where you can train earlier and do more damage. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the you know post-race is a really good example of that. If you took a whole bunch of people post, post an Ironman and took them to hospital without people in that, you know, accident and emergency knowing that they've done an Ironman and you, you know, you check them for heart anomalies, you'd probably find at least 50% of them look like they're sort of pre-stroke oh, um, wow. because of the, you know, the, the, the metabolites that you would see, um, from a cardiac perspective. Um, and you know, the things like massage post-race, you know, you have to be, in my mind, you have to be really, really careful with that. You know, certainly, you know, after such a, you know, an arduous event as an Ironman, um, a massage definitely feels, you know, nice, but it definitely doesn't want to be an aggressive massage because the trauma that you've had on the muscles um, and almost certainly the level of dehydration that might have been in incurred um, is such that, you know, a really, really aggressive sports massage, literally after you've just crossed the finish line, you know, could almost put you in a position of being susceptible to rhabdomyolysis. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, you know, something like a light sort of flushing out you know, to, to loosen the muscles, um, you know, is always beneficial, but I, you know, I've had lots of pros that, um, tend to prefer to get a massage post race, um, two to three days after the race rather than straight away. Yeah, that makes sense. And that actually leads nicely into my next question about, um, uh, about periodization of recovery. I mean, uh, clearly recovery is important always every day of your life. Uh, but are there any times, and you mentioned, you know, before heading into a race season or a big race, maybe that's, that's the, that's the time, but are there any times where you, uh, you pay a lot more attention to it where you say, you know, we're, we're going to be extra careful with your recovery. Um, even if it means doing less training, um, certainly around sort of stressful events in people's lives that are, you know, outside of triathlon. Okay. Um, and, you know, also around travel, you know, particularly transatlantic travel, mm. um, you know, you want to be really cognizant of the, of how that impacts on the body, um, coming down from altitude. Um, there's another example of where you might need to be really sensitive to recovery. You know, there's a, there's, you know, there's a lot of evidence around the benefits of altitude training, but there's also a lot of evidence that says that the response to altitude training is highly individual. And, and, you know, there's, biological reasons for that various forms but what that means is that for some people you know they they might produce incredible results you know one to two days after coming down from altitude and for other people they you know they don't actually really kind of bounce back until sort of four or five or even six days later oh interesting um you know there's a great study that look there's a great sort of meta-analysis of of altitude training and it looked at various studies with elite athletes and it said, you know, the, the best performance post altitude training comes, you know, in sort of two to three days, you know, or even, you know, one to two days after altitude and can be as much as, you know, up to three weeks out, but, but certainly really close and about three weeks later seem to be the optimal points. But they still admit that within the studies that they looked at, there were still plenty of subjects who you know, we're putting out PRs 14 or 16 days after being altitude. So it wasn't like, you know, you either need to perform really well straight away or you're likely to perform really well three weeks later. It's, there's a whole spectrum and it's very, very individual. So, you know, things like heat, things like travel, things like altitude, um, you know, are things where you nearly need to be really cognizant of, of recovery. Um, you know, training camps are an interesting one because actually for many people, sometimes training camps 
take them out of a stressful life situation where there's lo- they're spinning lots of plates and yep. put them in an environment where they're where they're you know eat sleep train and and that's actually one very you know obvious and reasonable criticism that that is basically saying you know correlation does not imply causation that has talked around you know athletes adapting to altitude and and in and you know one sports scientist pointed out you know let's not ignore the elephant in the room that is you've taken these athletes from a busy lifestyle during the day at home and stuck them in a monastic lifestyle <laughs> in a facility that was built in the 70s where literally it's like you know being in a boarding school and just eating sleeping and training yeah and 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 there's an obvious upside to that um and so you know there's there's definitely situations where you would periodize your approach to the recovery and then you know kind of coming down from some more of a 10,000 foot view to you know what to do on a day-to-day basis I think I think how people structure training is an interesting one I think um, I'm a firm believer that we're creatures of habit and having like a seven-day structure is is good Um, and I've seen that borne out in the athletics field where um, I've I've heard coaches talk about how you know monday is always a a neurological activation day because athletes have always in the you know in the summertime tended to compete on a saturday or a sunday mm-hmm. um and more than likely they competed on a saturday rested on a sunday and then monday they kind of need to wake wake the body back up right um with good movement patterns and so with that seven day structure I, I do strongly feel that you know whether it's you know even if it's a pro uh, athlete, um, I do strongly feel that there should always be one rest day a week. And you know, for some people, there may not be a complete day of rest. It may be just like go out for a twenty-minute jog, no devices, smell the flowers, look you know look at the wildlife, chat with friends. Sure. Um, but but what that sort of day of rest is also about is also about sometimes sort of repaying the support that you get from those around you you know whether it's sort of loved ones or other family members but it's about sort of paying that back and spending time with them and doing things that maybe they want to do Mm -hmm. um because the rest of the week you know they're supporting you in your pursuit of you know not putting the kids to bed and being on the bike trainer downstairs or, you know, having the food on the table when you get off the trainer because you're a professional athlete. Right, right. Um, so it's almost a recovery day for your personal life too. Yeah, it it, it, it is. And I think there's there would be, um, there'd be plenty of sports psychologists that would say that, you know, there's a strong upside to that in um, in terms of sort of emotive feelings and, um, and, and obviously more recently, um, being in the proximity of family and friends has become more and more of a, of a, something that people have talked about and the importance of, of touch, you know, like being able to, you know, hug another family member, you know, is, is something that, um, you know, is, is talked about as, significantly positively impacting on the mental state of well-being mm-hmm. and in the current climate you know people are you know devoid of that and um and you know that that mental well-being is something that i think we need to understand as we evolve and and probably find that lots of people are suddenly going to be in a situation where they are actually working from home because companies see a benefit to that financially but the downside is that it it takes away a social interaction or even uh, you know a, a physical interaction if it's visiting friends and family right right yeah so um that is that's a, that's a really important point that that mental health component because um not having things go well mentally uh is is a huge stressor obviously absolutely um, and that has a massive impact on training you know because motivation when when there are you know difficult difficult emotional issues for someone to deal with, then the motivation to train goes down the toilet, and and it's uh, you know you know never mind quality of life, but even from a strictly training perspective, uh, maintaining mental health is is essential. And and I think you know 
as, as a good rule of thumb, I always say to athletes that, you know, they should be able to get to the end of a week. And if I phone them up on a Sunday lunchtime and said, you know, I actually just need you to do one more quality workout to, you know, bake the cake perfectly, that they would say, okay, you know, yes, coach, what do you need me to do? You know, rather than, oh, man, I don't know if I've got it in me. Mm-hmm. You know, you should always have one workout in the bank. You know, you should never finish, you should never finish a workout completely crushed, like, you know, vomiting on the side of the athletics <laughs> track or keeled over on the floor next to the indoor bike trainer. And, you know, and unless you're a 200 meter sprinter in the velodrome, that's a, but that's a different yeah. physiological demand. Right. Um, Lovely. Uh, David, I think we got through all the questions that I had. Andrew, was there anything else on your mind for today's discussion about recovery? No, I think we brought up most of the the questions that I had. And to be honest, a lot of them were just around kind of the the softer points or like the more uh, the mental aspects of recovery and how you how you approach it and how it affects you uh, just in terms of mindset. Because that's what's, what I've been really noticing lately is just the the stress load in terms of what's going on with the world, what's going on with work, that stuff has been the bigger load on me and it's actually affected my training a lot more than I expected. So I think we covered that part quite well. Yeah, I think the, you know, I, I would wrap it up and say there are no magical devices. There are no magical pills, um, legal, <laughs> um, that, um, that, you know, miraculously improve recovery and adaptation. You know, the reality is get the basics right, which, uh, you know, look after your body. You know, we didn't, we didn't talk about, you know, strength and conditioning work, mm. but, you know, they, I think that's an important part of recovery. But, you know, look after your body, create, create resilience in your body to, to cope with the training and express force, um, whether it's, you know, running or biking or swimming, um, you know, create those foundations of, sleep and nutrition and and you're not going to go far wrong and and as a consequence you know you don't need to be looking down rabbit holes of some sort of magical device that's been endorsed by <laughs> somebody or yes um, yeah it's always the you know the desire for the the hack or the quick fix that uh, that leads us down those rabbit holes and the the, the true fix is... i can't stand that word uh, they, i can't that word drives me insane <laughs> like everything's a hack yep yep <laughs> no, I, I i hear you where the, the the real answer is you know proper habits of uh, of creating resilience i like that uh, that turn of phrase yeah so one tool that i actually wanted to mention that we kind of we danced around it previously but in terms of asking yourself these questions about condition and recovery uh, one tool that I find a lot of value from is actually, um, we had him on as a, a guest previously, but from Marco Altini, HRV for training. Uh, each time you do one of these self-analyses, it asks you a bunch of questions. Yeah. And maybe not even the answers to the questions here, the, but the important part, but just thinking about the questions, thinking, did I get a good sleep last night? Did I have a high stress load yesterday? Is my life a hot mess right now or am I pretty stable? Mm-hmm. Uh, once you're forced to answer those questions and just admit it to yourself, that I think is the first step in, in really understanding whether or not you need proper recovery or if your body is in a good condition. Yeah, that could be a huge self-reflective driver um, for some people. Um, and I think it can, you know, for other people, it can create a lot of second guessing. Um, but I think in the main, it, it definitely helps people just stop and think and, and realize, mm, yeah, maybe doing that totally awesome epic workout today is not the smartest idea. Yeah. I was, I was listening to both of you talking about uh, how frustrating it was to have athletes crank it up to 110% intensity. (laughs) And I very strategically kept my mouth shut because I, I've been guilty of that in the past. I mean, I think, you know, I think, you know, yeah, I mean, I think there is also though, there's a time and a place to, you know, give people in, in, you know, so, you know, give them the right to sort of unleash the horsepower. Um, and then there's a time to make sure that they understand the importance of, you know, kind of bearing in mind that, that, you know, today's training is related to tomorrow's is related to the day after is related to the week after. Um, it's not just some random, you know, kind of lick my finger and stick it up and guess the wind speed, <laughs> which some folks do. 
Right. Well, David, thank you very much for uh, for coming on and uh, and sharing your knowledge once again for the third time um, in the in the history of our show. <laughs> uh, is there is there uh, anything that you want to plug on your end? Um, how's your uh, how's your athlete roster looking right now? Are are there any openings? I know that that hasn't been the case for many years. No, it's uh, it's still the same case. Yeah. I uh, no, I don't have any any uh, magical training plans or or mysterious devices to. Or pills to, <laughs> to hawk. So sorry. No, no, fair enough. But and then, um, but your uh, your training roster. Are you full at the moment, or are you accepting applications? I am full. Um, have been uh, for some time, and and tend to have a waiting list. Excellent. Um, so I have sort of five or six athletes on a waiting list at the moment that you know, I've shown interest. You know, I I just personally have always chosen to to work with about 15, 16 people globally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it. And, and that keeps me happy and it keeps me sane and it keeps, um, you know, a nice balance with the family. And so, uh, you know, that's what I've always stuck to and that's what I'll continue to stick to. And, um, sometimes opportunities arise when, you know, people move on or they retire. You know, I've had that over the last couple of years, I've had some people retire. Sure. Um, but, but generally speaking, um, I am, you know, one of those individuals that has a waiting list. Oh, that's good to hear. Very good to hear. So we'll uh, we'll link folks to your website just in case they do want to you know look up a little bit more information on you. And uh, yeah, certainly, there's plenty on the on the media page if people are interested. There's lots of podcast interviews and and articles that you know people that I've I know I've always tried to be very sort of free and open with you know what I what I've learned and know so far. You know, not to sound really facile, but to me, it's it's also a little bit like, you know, when you watch um, Chef's Table on Netflix, you know, you see these like Michelin starred chefs that are obsessed with perfectionism, like, and never satisfied. And you look at them and you see them making creme brulee and you go, well, I can make creme brulee. <laughs> yeah. So, well, yeah, you can. But you sure as shit can't make it as good as that person who's got three Michelin stars. Um, so I, I kind of feel like that. Whereas I think if you'd asked me as a coach, you know, 15 years ago, you know, oh, you know, what do you do for this type of training? I go, oh, well, you know, you know, I've I've crafted this way of doing it, you know, that my athletes use, and I wouldn't actually disclose it because I feel like I know some sort of magical, you know. So where I was on the Dunning Kruger curve was <laughs> probably on the wrong part of the curve. But whereas now I'm like. I'll tell anybody, you know, anything that what I, I've learned and know so far, and that, and what I learned and know so far will probably be, you know, will certainly be different in twelve months or in two years or in five years. Mm-hmm. And so, I'd rather just share it and not be fussed about it because, you know, I've, I've kind of come to the point of how I plan and decide things based on twenty years of coaching, not just knowing this paper says X or this textbook says this or this governing body guideline says this. Perfect. Well, uh, with that, I'll say thank you very much to everyone tuning in. Uh, If you enjoy the show, do rate and review us on iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcasts and uh, consider supporting us as well through uh, our Supercast page.